Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf, deep in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK. And I am joined today by three of our regulars, David Sanger of the New York Times, Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. We were going to have Corey Shockey, by the way, with us, but a time change between our two countries has made that beyond our capacities here in the Ministry of Stark, because we only have one clock on the wall. Anyway, it's being adjusted, and she will be back with us which, next. David, which time zone is shown on the wall clock in the Ministry of Snark? 1856. Uh-huh. I, you know, it's an old clock. <laughs> um, but uh, in any event, uh, we will uh, get, uh, uh, get get Corey back with us uh, next week. We, we miss her. Um, anyway. Uh, let's let's begin with uh, the news that uh, came out of Beijing this week. Kim Jong Un uh, and his crew uh, and his wife took the train ride from Pyongyang to Beijing on the armored train. Nobody knew what was going on, or at least very few people did. Uh, and lo and behold, by the very end of this thing, it was announced that not only was there a meeting uh, between. Uh, Kim and and Xi Jinping, but that they discussed the upcoming summit, that Kim seems serious about it, that he's willing to talk about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Um, and, you know, all in all, it, it seems like, to, you know, belabor the metaphor, the train is actually leaving the station in terms of the... Uh, um, you know, the possibility of a summit between the United States and the North Koreans uh, and, you know, beating a dead horse, that that train runs through Beijing. Uh, in other words, the role of the Chinese is going to be fairly significant in all of this. I'd like to talk about it, and then I'd like to come back and talk a little bit about some recent developments from North Korea that David has has been reporting on at the New York Times uh, with his colleagues, but let's just let's just start with this. How significant do you think uh, the the outcomes from this meeting in Beijing were, David? You used to cover this on a daily basis. What do you What do you think? Well, I think it is significant for a couple of reasons, David. First, the um, the visit was like a full state visit. As you said, uh, Kim brought his wife, he brought a dig delegation, he was there for three days. He got there in you know, the, his, his uh, super secret bulletproof uh, uh, train. Uh, bearing, was, bearing his dead horse, which he was bearing, right. at the time. <laughs> which, was, which, was, which had you know, fine wine spilling out the back of the caboose and, and so forth. Um, yeah, no, I saw that train. Did you see the movie Snowpiercer? 
<laughs> you know, we've all been just commenting before we we went on here that if Amtrak could get a train that good, people would actually like ride it. You know, <laughs> look, bulletproof wine. What more do you want? Um, so, a um, uh, couple of interesting things. First of all, we we don't know of no case where Kim has left North Korea since he came back as a um, student in Switzerland. So it was notable that he left. Secondly, it was notable that he felt like he had to make the trip to China after he had wanted China's leaders to come to him. Thirdly, the Chinese sensing that there's a big piece of diplomacy out here that Donald Trump's going to get involved in, wanted to make it clear that they were going to be part of the story here. And uh, so they were basically doing the, the pregame show with Kim. Fourthly, they came out with a statement that included the fact that denuclearization was going to be on the table. Now, we had not heard the North Koreans say that other than through South Korea prior to this, and we had not heard the North Koreans confirm they actually really wanted to go meet Trump. So I think the chances of the meeting happening, which I've been a skeptic about, have gone up somewhat. A lot of things could blow up between now and then. Last thing In is... In a manner of speaking. Yes, right. Um, the last... That's why you're digging that silo, uh, Rosa, a little oh, bit. Man. The, the last thing to remember here is, and we've said this on past episodes, the way they define denuclearization and the way we define denuclearization are night and day. John Bolton's idea of denuclearization is... Here's a FedEx envelope or box. Take all your nuclear everything and mail it to our weapons lab in Tennessee. And we're not going to talk to you about what you get in return because you're not getting anything in return. The uh, North Korean view of denuclearization is we can do this as soon as those nasty Americans pull all their troops out of South Korea, pull back all of their forces from Asia, have no way of reaching us with a nuclear weapon as well. Then we'll talk. So there's a big space out here, and it's not as if there have not been three or four denuclearization agreements before. I'm so old, I sat in the room during one, one was signed in the early 90s. Uh, Rosa was, was still in elementary school at the time. <laughs> yes. Um, Thank you, David. <laughs> so so uh, uh, we, the optimism is great. The fact that people are, are excited about the fact that there is, is an alternative here to getting into the war John Bolton has talked about uh, being long overdue. Um, that's all good, but I wouldn't get too excited. Well, okay. Well, you wouldn't. And at, you know, at your age, that's probably just as well. But, uh, the, 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 but, but, but the, I know I'm older. I, I get it. But in any event, the, 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 the reality, Ed, is this. Um, looking at it through a domestic U.S. lens, Donald Trump will achieve nothing more on his domestic agenda. The omnibus bill was the last bill of the Paul Ryan era. Paul Ryan will resign. He will leave. He will have on his record being one of the greatest budget busters of all time, which is ironic. Um, and But nothing's going to happen between now and the election on the domestic side. Internationally, he'll pull out of the Iran deal. Things will look a little bit dodgy. And Donald Trump's going to be looking at the landscape, 
Stormy coming at him from one direction, Mueller coming at him from another direction. He's going to need a win. And so he's going to have every incentive in the world to try to turn this North Korean thing into a win. It's very likely, based on what the reporting has been and the analysis that David just gave, that this meeting is actually going to take place. But at the end of the day, it's a question of what the outcome is and what do you consider a successful outcome. Since Trump is going to want to declare victory, it seems quite likely to me that what you're going to end up with is one of those uh, well, we have an agreement to begin a process, to have a negotiation, to have a discussion about some outcomes which are going to happen sometime. Yay, big celebration. And then all the hard stuff, which is essentially what David just described, which is reconciling one vision of denuclearization with another, is going to take place in the next administration. Um, Ed, that what do you what do you think of that analysis? Well, you're forgetting one one big Trump win that's going to happen between now and November, which is of course the two state solution uh, in Israel Palestine. Um, oh yeah, which, no, no, that's a that's you're you're absolutely right, and also the return of Jesus Christ, which is scheduled for July sometime. The rap the rapture is on the schedule. Yeah, I haven't seen it on, right. the, on the on the weekly schedule, but it's there somewhere. Yeah. Um, uh, look, the the best the best characterization. I think of North Korea's position that I've seen so far is that they're, they're prepared to cut the grass, but not pull it up by its roots, um, which, you know, as David points out, is a very different idea of what John Bolton, for example, has means by denuclearization. Um, so uh, uh, if and when this summit does take place in May, and, you know, May seems an awful long time away, but if an, uh, uh, John Bolton, of course, begins his job on April the 9th, if, if and when this summit does um, uh, happen in May, it's going to be an extraordinary opportunity for a dialogue of the death. As you say, Trump is going to be desperate to show that he is a brilliant deal maker. And this is Kim Jong-un's um, leverage over him. Uh, he's going to want to come out with some kind of an agreement. Uh, if it's anything less than a commitment to really genuine IAEA standard denuclearization with international inspectors and all the kinds of intrusions Iran has agreed to, uh, then um, uh, then John Bolton and, and others are not going to accept accept this. Um, uh, if, it, if it's anything, um, if, it, if it's anything more than that, then, you know, I will eat my hat. I, North Korea is not going to denuclearize. It is not going to happen. Uh, I do find it, you know, fascinating that in between now and then we, we have the Iran certification decision and how that bears on, on um, the uh, North Korea mindset what whether Trump pulls out from that and imposes new sanctions on Iran and demonstrates just how futile it is reaching any kind of deal with the United States should surely have a bearing on on any sane White House approach to such to such a summit. But with wait, wait a second. House, wait a second. I don't understand that concept. Sane, okay. sane White House approach. Well, I was saying with this White House, I, I, I'm very skeptical. It's going to there's going to be joined up. There's going to be joined up thinking on it. Um, so uh, I, I would I would go with the implicit tenor of your question, David. This, this is uh, this is going to be um, it's going to be an extraordinary summit if it happens. 
Okay. Uh, Rosa, um, t- you know, living on the bright side of the street, as you always do, what's your take on this? No, I think David and Ed uh, have pretty much said it all. Um, I, you know, I, the, one, the one thing I will say, um, the ever so slight glimmer of hope that is created by the meeting between uh, Kim Jong-un and the Chinese leader um, is forces me to say, not not exactly that there is method to Trump's madness, but in th- that on this one occasion, Trump's madness may have helped produce a a somewhat better than better outcome than we otherwise would have had. But recognizing all the all the hurdles that still lie ahead, in the sense that that I you know I do suspect that that she and the the Chinese thought, oh no, you know Trump is going to meet with this guy. And he's crazy and he's going to bring his new national security advisor, John Bolton, and he's crazy. And all kinds of catastrophes could actually result from that, uh, in- including nuclear catastrophes. And we better, you know, we, we have been kind of on the sidelines of this, reluctant to get sucked back in. Uh, but this is bad and the potential for really bad outcomes for us, e.g. a war and massive refugee flows have just gone up by by virtue of Trump being Trump and by virtue of Bolton being Bolton. Uh, and we we better get re-engaged. Um, so, so I do think that although for all the reasons that David, David and Ed have articulated, you know, real denuclearization of the sort that the U.S. and in the current administration will will want is extraordinarily unlikely. Uh, that the reactive reengagement of China is probably the the single thing that makes a not quite as catastrophic outcome a little bit more likely uh, in terms of putting pressure on North Korea. Well, I actually think that you know it's not a reactivization of China; it's a recognition of the role China played. At, you know, at the end of the Korean War, um, a, a negotiation that I don't believe you were in the room for, David. Uh, there was, uh, uh, you know, China, the U.S., the South Koreans, and the North Koreans in the discussion. There is actually a school of thought that says that if you want to make this discussion uh, a, a, a road towards a real ultimate resolution of that conflict, you need all four of them in the room. Also, the Chinese, um, besides being the dominant player in the region, offer the, the 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 dodge that the US can essentially say well we're going to maintain maximum pressure until this negotiation produces results while at the same time the chinese say well we're going to take the heat off a little bit remember well kim was in beijing he was having discussions with them about trade and economic assistance as well so the chinese could sort of offset a little bit of the U.S. pressure, while the U.S. got to talk up the U.S. pressure, and you end up with this kind of, to borrow a different country's terminology from the region, this kind of kabuki exercise where we look like we're being tough, um, and everybody is essentially trying to create the illusion of progress. Uh, and while some may actually seek it, it's all going to be punted off into the into the future when perhaps a different kind of U.S. administration will recognize that North Korea will actually never denuclearize um, and that, in fact, we're going to have to come up with some kind of different approach for dealing with that. What do you think? Well, David, I I did miss the end of the Korean War, but I have to say I've gone back and played your um, 
interviews with Douglas MacArthur on the original Deep State Radio. It was Deep you know, State, well, was still yeah. On radio. Yeah, he was a and, bit of a he was a bit of an arrogant jerk, by the yeah, way. He yeah. was. He he was. He, he reminded me of, you know, that he probably wouldn't have gotten into the spirit of the conversation. No, there were no mugs. That we did not yeah, give him a mug or no, a T-shirt. No mug. He that's was. It. Yeah. Um, so. Um, a few things that I think are going to be the realities that are going to strike this. Um, President Trump used to say he was going to solve this problem and he wasn't going to let a um, negotiation turn into incremental advances back and forth. And and John Bolton has truly said that. He's basically said it should be one meeting. We should go issue an ultimatum, pack up our briefcases and leave. Now, my guess is Trump's not going to let that happen because this is just based on the tweet that he turned out that this was such a historic moment and so forth. He views this as legacy making. So it's going to be a really interesting tug of war between his negotiating strategy here and his new national security advisors. Um, the second thing that I think is going to come out of it is, that, as Ed pointed out, the Iran uh, decision, whether or not to leave the uh, the Iran nuclear accord, which seems all but inevitable right now, will definitely be um, speaking to what he gets in North Korea. Because if he got anything close to what uh, John Kerry got in the um, Iran deal for North Korea, it would truly be um, reason for parades and celebrations in the streets. Because that included a full suspension of all of their ability to make um, nuclear material for the next, well, it was 15 years at the time, 13 now. And as we reported in this big graphic you can find on the website and, and in the print paper uh, uh, on Wednesday. Wait, um, I have to unwrap this fish. Oh, yes, now I see it. Do. Yes, yeah. you remember the print paper, David. It's what we used to bring out when you were, you know. No, no, I, I used to. Going into in journalism, yeah, it used to be very, uh, uh, very handy, but then the hamster died. The ha- <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so um, uh, this sort of showed that while the North Koreans are making the the nice talk about denuclearization, they are bringing online a new nuclear reactor that they've been working on for about four years, uh, which can produce about four bombs worth of plutonium each year. Now they haven't talked about it much. It may simply be a bargaining chip. Uh, Certainly the Iranians did something similar uh, before the Iran nuclear deal uh, was signed. But the reality is that even if they froze their missile launches and their nuclear tests, while negotiations dragged on, they would be adding considerably to the size of their arsenal. And that's what Bolton has said we can never abide. And it certainly wouldn't be the kind of thing that would be complete with Donald Trump's idea that he's going to have a full solution to this problem. Now, he also said the Mexicans are going to pay for the wall and now seems to want to get that out of the Defense Department, Uh, not the Mexican Defense Department, our Defense Department. So um, uh, this will be a fascinating look at uh, Trump's first entry into a negotiation that really had nothing to do with real estate or budget sizes, but instead probably the deadliest piece of arms control that we've had to negotiate in 30 years. Well, that's, you know, that's, I, you know, I, I can't, again, I can't fault 
that analysis. I think that's exactly right. One of the things that I think has been most interesting of the past week, Ed, is the train ride was to Beijing, that the pictures were with Xi Jinping, that while the summit supposedly is with Trump and Kim, and that's the news, uh, the reality is that China is the great X factor here. This is not going to advance without them. Kim realized that he went there in a very canny move. Uh, and it seems likely that China's going to be involved in this summit in a, or this process in a very substantial way. Um, in fact, they're sending a team now to brief the South Koreans prior to the meeting that the South Koreans will have in April with the North Koreans. Um, and, and frankly, among the people that I've spoken to, among the likely places for a summit is actually China, because within the Koreas, the only possibility is uh, along the the DMZ, and that sort of seems seems uh, complicated in a number of respects. Uh, and so, in 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 all of this happening, one of the subtexts it seems to me is the growing influence and confidence and deftness of the regime in Beijing in dealing with these things um, and in dealing with the U.S. and others through them. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think it's a a very fair assessment. I mean, this has always de facto been a a four-party situation with the two Koreas, China and the U.S., uh, maybe four, four and a half plus another half to make five if you if you if you include Japan and Russia. But basically the four key players are these. And I think China uh, under Xi Jinping is the most uh, sophisticated and capable of thinking long term strategically of the of the two sort of big sponsors. Um, the uh, you know love there is no love lost between Xi Jinping and Kim Jong un. I mean this is you know a rogue ally of China that has embarrassed him repeatedly, including with its tests last November when Trump was in the region and the G20 meet and the ASEAN meetings were happening. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it's a problem child. So it's, it's not as bad as having a unified career, which is something China will bend over backwards to prevent if it can. But having a rogue protege like Kim Jong-un, um, has been a, a source of constant irritation to Xi Jinping and to China over the longer term. Um, so I was fascinated by the picture. Once that, uh, once that um, Asela had, had turned up in Beijing and, and the um, uh, Kim and Xi and their respective wives uh, took their photo ops, you, you saw sort of four locked jaws, four sort of rows of gritted teeth there. These, these are not natural pals. Um, China's China's goal here is, I think, to ensure that there isn't any big upset. Uh, they can't control Kim Jong-un and they can't control Trump. So if you wanted a, an ideal scenario for a wily strategic operator to try and arrange the theater, this is a, about the least likely one I could think of, a Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump summit. Um, and I think China's, you know, going to do what it can to to try and prevent an upset. Well, China can do can do quite a bit. Um, uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, as the you'll forgive the expression, Excella of evil rolled into Beijing's <laughs> station. 
Uh, thank you. Thank you for laughing at that, Rosa. Um, I assume David. I'm, I'm laughing too. Yeah, I assume. He's laughing I, in his heart. Right. I'm, I, I'm I, chuckling politely. I assume. I, just, I unmuted my button so that you could hear it. Thank you. I assume Sanger is muted and is just. No, no, Sanger it was not muted, but he didn't want to give you the satisfaction of laughing at that joke. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, 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 we've known each other long enough that I interpret that as a laugh. Um, uh, but in any event, um, one thing that strikes me, Rosa, and this is a, you know, a rogue rogue regimes and and lunatic dictators are subjects you know well um is uh, just from dealing with us on this show is that that kim jong un has handled this in an extremely rational way sure. he you know he 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 has managed actually during his tenure to despite not actually being able to run a country successfully gain influence gain a nuclear arsenal, test the limits, be perceived as one of the great threats to the greatest power on earth, um, uh, win the attention of the reluctant Chinese, uh, bring the American... hermits, they play a pretty good game, don't they? Right. Bring the American president to the table, do so with the assistance of others. Um, I mean, seriously, this guy, what is he, 32 years old? This guy's doing pretty well, is it, you know, don't, don't you think? <laughs> He is. And it's it's hard work being a dictator. Um, no, I mean, in some ways, I, I, I don't mean this in a sort of moral sense, but in some ways, you know, I don't envy him. Right. I mean, he 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 inherits this completely screwed up dysfunctional country uh, where if he relaxes his grip on power, he's dead. Uh, and so is everybody he likes, um, you know, and and. For a guy who, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not wasting a lot of tears on the the tragedy of of Kim Jong Un's plight, but but for a guy who, in some ways, was handed a a pretty bad set of cards, um, he, as you say, he's doing extremely well. You know, he he has managed to kill off a few of his potential internal threats. Uh, maintain his grip on using power, using, using anti-aircraft guns occasionally using apparently. all kinds of cunning <laughs> cunning means um i bet putin's a little jealous um you know i mean obviously there's there's a lot that we don't know about the internal power dynamics in north korea and his position may be more precarious than we realize but but at least from the outside he seems as though he's in fact shored up his own position uh, and at the same time, been very, very clever about how he interacts with the United States. I, I mean, I think the fact that he is appears to be a completely rational actor is good news for the rest of the world. Um, you know, Trump is clearly not a rational actor, and and having one insane guy in a in a nuclear negotiation seems like quite enough. Um, so, so you know, I think we should all take heart at the fact that. He shows no inclination whatsoever to self-destruct and, you know, go down with the ship um, and will seek some way out of this. Uh, I also think that although Trump is not a rational actor, that as we know, Trump's short attention span can be the, the biggest gift to world peace. Uh, you know, that he will get and, and, and in our last our, our last uh, emergency podcast on John Bolton, we wondered how many how many Scaramucci's John Bolton would last, because even though I, I think that the 
you know, Bolton entering the picture, uh, obviously an extremely bellicose stance towards North Korea, not to mention uh, half a dozen other places, um, sort of ups the ante in terms of catastrophe. It also raises the question of at what point Trump, with his short attention span and big ego, gets sick of having Bolton tell him what to do and having Bolton say, no, this isn't good enough, no, this isn't good enough, you know, that could just as easily irritate Trump and just simply make him ignore Bolton or fire Bolton as it could make him decide to fire nuclear weapons at the North Koreans. Um, and remember, he's you know, never liked the mustache. He's never liked the mustache, right. Yeah. Um, and he, here he's going to be sitting in a room with a, you know, a guy with a mustache and a guy with no mustache. And who will he, who will he like better, the dictator with no mustache or the asshole with a mustache? Well, um, imagine imagine combining the Bolton mustache and the Kim haircut. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> wow, that's pretty fantastic. Uh, I think then that we ought to set up a Twitter challenge in which in which our our listeners, you know, sort of put both on Ed Luce's face and and <laughs> see you, how this works. Do you, do you mind if I just mute my my sound button while I vomit? Because I don't think <laughs> I don't think listeners are going to want to hear that. <laughs> No, it, well, it's true. But, you know, can you imagine Xi Jinping facing this meeting, you know, you know, and going, you know, Trump's there and Kim is there and Bolton is there. And he's like, you know, being the most powerful man in the world isn't what I thought it was going to be. You know, I mean, dealing with all of these jerks. But you know who else? All these loonies. <laughs> yeah. But but you know who else comes out pretty well in all of this? President Moon. The The South Koreans have managed this pretty well, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think they have sort of nudged Trump along. And I think a perfect example of this, David used to be in the olden days, an economics reporter, but I, you know, I think a perfect example of this is this big trade negotiation that the U S and the South Koreans have had, um, where they've sort of reached an agreement, which will get South Korea mostly off the hook regarding the steel tariffs. And there's been a little concession, but, you know, it's it's it. They've they've sort of checked the boxes in a way to manage this and manage the relationship. And one of the people that I've spoken to who's close to the negotiation has said that the real the, the one of the great things about the South Koreans is every time Moon talks to Trump, you know, he begins by, oh, you're doing a great job. Oh, you're fantastic. Um, and perhaps there is a lesson in all of that for, you know, the rest yeah, of the you world. You saw his national security advisor when he was here start off by saying that it was, of course, the Trump policies that brought the North to the table and all that. The South Koreans, I actually think the Trump policies did help bring the North Koreans to the table. But the, the South Koreans are going out of their way to stroke President Trump's ego and to take the trade issues off the table by signing a trade agreement, amendments basically to the free trade agreement that don't strike me to be dramatic changes. They've, they've moved from a limit of 25,000 American cars to 50,000, which would be really, really impressive had they imported more than 11,000 cars last year. But they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, uh, oh, details, details. Um, uh, it, it, it actually wouldn't be impressive, you know, in any other context except that, perhaps. But you know, Ed, one of the things that strikes me in all of this is that um, obviously there's a China trade uh, potential problem in in the midst of this, and Trump is going to pretty rapidly face this choice which is either he comes down hard on China 
or China does what it can to make difficult achieving the only foreign policy, actually the only major success Trump is likely to be able to achieve between now and November. So it seems like China's got a, a bunch of leverage on the trade deal, too. Uh, indeed. And I, I, we have to, in this context, uh, mention Japan. David's absolutely right. The South Koreans have sort of taken to an art form um, uh, the um, uh, the practice of crediting Trump with everything, uh, um, an art form seconded only by um, the White House, which is taking credit for everything, including Kim Jong-un's trip to Beijing, by the way. Um, the Japanese, though, must be feeling um, a little bit hurt because they haven't received these exceptions to the Trump um, steel and aluminum um, actions. Um, and Abe has been second to none in stroking Trump's e ego from, from day one after he was elected. Uh, the, China, the China trade dynamic is a very interesting parallel to the North Korea-Trump summit dynamic, as you point out. Uh, we've, we've got, uh, in the next couple of weeks, um, uh, the, the list of actual actions that the White House um, is planning to, to unveil on all kinds of Chinese strategic sectors, which if we see anything like what we've been briefed is going to happen, would be the beginning of um, uh, the rockiest period in US-China trade relations, really, since it joined the WTO. Uh, uh, so I doubt that's going to happen. Trump is great at threatening things and then pulling back. A classic example of that is the rhetoric on China in the build-up to his visit to Beijing last November. And then when he arrived in Beijing, the Chinese were all ready with their responses to what they anticipated Trump was going to say, and he didn't say anything. Uh, confounding not just China, but his own his own advisors. So, you know, Trump is quite capable of um, taking us right up to the cliff edge and then, you know, offering you a cup of tea and a deck, a deck chair. Uh, it, it's it's no guide as to what he's going to do on China. Well, actually, in most things, what he does is take things up to the cliff and then back away. I mean, he talks tough, but he doesn't follow through on his tough talk, does he, Rosa? So far, he has not. And again, that's a very good thing. I mean, this was Corey and I developed this theory that in Corey, Corey felt that, in fact, he's a coward. I think he just has a short attention span and can't be bothered. Uh, but either way, it's a good thing. Yeah, his, his, his rhetoric so far has, when push comes to shove, not been backed up by tough action. He, he, he blusters. He makes a lot of noise. Uh, and then he does something that is either a giant nothing or very close to a giant nothing and says, see how tough I am. And then he goes on to the next thing. Well, and you know, you've seen a couple. I mean, I've made a joke before about the, the Mexican wall. Thing, but he signed a bill the other day that offered one point six billion dollars for building the wall instead of the twenty five he had been talking about. And while he complained about it, he signed it. He signed a trade deal with South Korea that in any other context, you would call a marginal change on a, you know, on an updating an old trade deal. These have not been revolutionary actions. Even well, and also, he, he announced steel and, uh, for, for you, Ed, aluminium sanctions, um, and then immediately started saying, yeah, but not Australia, not Canada, not 
Mexico, not not, South you know, Korea. Yeah, right. right. You know, and so no, that's absolutely right. So, what does that tell you about the nuclear negotiations that are about to go on here? He sort of put himself in a tough spot here because anything that looks less than what uh, Barack Obama and John Kerry got out of the Iranians uh, will make a um, North Korea deal look weak. And yet I can't imagine the North Koreans agreeing to what the Iranians agreed to, in part because the Iranians had no weapons to go give up. And I have no idea how you would actually go verify the agreement uh, that they reach if they reached one, because uh, it's so easy to hide this stuff throughout North Korea. And so the president's going to have to find a way to, to spin it that he has actually made a huge, huge change here. And um, I think that's going to come under increasing scrutiny. And he's very sensitive to this stuff. It has enraged him in recent days that he is that he turns on the networks and find they find that they are um, broadcasting the promises he made during the campaign about the wall. So you can imagine what happens when the promises that the North Korea problem will be solved and that little rocket man will go away with his tail between his legs um, show up as well. Well, but Ed, I think uncharacteristically, David is making one mistake here, um, and that is that only one, just one, and that is you know this 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 theory that he actually needs the facts to be on his side to make the case. Um, you know, he. Yeah, I think he's fine <laughs> watching you know people on the cable shows talking about one point six billion dollars uh, versus twenty five. Um, uh, compared to what's on the other channels, which is Stormy Daniels' lawyer and Stormy Daniels herself, I think, you know, given a choice between... Hey, you're talking about Stormy it. Daniels' feminist hero. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, we, these are we live in interesting times. But, you know, I think in terms of, you know, how do you sell this deal, we're already starting to see little tweets and things. And, and the way Trump sells it is he says, well... All the other presidents, meaning two, you know, who are predi- you know, who faced this, couldn't solve it, didn't think it was solvable. Here I am. We're actually signing an agreement. It's the greatest agreement of all time. Iran didn't have nukes. North Korea actually does. We're talking about getting rid of them. This is a vital area of the world, and and no other. Everybody said this was impossible, but the South Koreans point out that it was my maximum toughness that made this a reality. You know, I mean, does he need more than that? Quite plausible. Look, I mean, if to follow that train of thought, I mean, this is not just a plausible scenario. Maybe it's it's the the least implausible in 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 this sort of Alice in Wonderland scenario we're in, which is that we do get some kind of a deal uh, because Trump desperately needs that headline um, that is less, as David points out, than what Kerry and Obama negotiated. Uh, uh, with Iran two years, three years ago, um, that is very much a defeat in substance for Trump, you know, compared to his goal of denuclearizing North Korea, and is very much a victory in substance for Kim Jong-un, because it takes him uh, a step closer to, to being a formally recognized nuclear power, a victory too for China, because it is brought a wayward protege, um, a grateful wayward protege, protege back out of the shade, and a victory for Moon Jae-in, all, th- all three of whom are well-trained enough to proclaim, along with Trump, that it is actually Trump's victory. That, that, is, that is an entirely plausible scenario. Right. And the fact that you can envision a scenario 
where a summit happens, a, an agreement that contains very few concessions is hailed as a victory, and all four parties walk away being able to declare victory and actually have one in a material sense, suggests that this is actually likely to happen because self, when self-interests are aligned, things happen. Um, I want to switch the subject here as we've got just a couple of minutes left um, to uh, the other you know, never-ending story, uh, which is Russia. Um, and Rosa, one of the you know, more interesting you know, developments in the past week in, in the Russia story has been that uh, Mueller uh, filed some documents the other night in which he um, seemed to indicate that Paul Manafort and Gates had working for them to the, and, and known to them a former GRU officer, of course, the notion of former GRU officer is a bit of an oxymoron, um, and and who, who you know was actually on their team, um, and uh, and they knew it, and they talked about it, and they talked about it with some kind of pride. And so now we have this situation where the chairman of the president's campaign, the deputy chairman of the president's campaign, other people who are working with that campaign knew that he had working for him a GRU officer. This chairman of the campaign was on the hook to Russian oligarchs, for whom, by the way, that GRU officer was an interlocutor. Um, they uh, hired in the campaign um, a firm, uh, Cambridge Analytica, that actually uh, had ties to the Russians, had done work for the Russians, um, and was involved in this kind of broader disinformation campaign in the United States. There were people, others on the campaign, who arranged meetings with senior-level Russians. There were um, uh, people on the campaign who were interacting, again, with Russian intelligence officers, people like Roger Stone through Goosefer 2.0, um, uh, to encourage uh, uh, the release uh, and to find information about the release of information from WikiLeaks, which is an agent of the Russian government. Um, and I could go on and on, but it seems to me, you know, that there is so much evidence here of, of beyond collusion, a kind of incestuous relationship between the Russian government and the Trump campaign, uh, that you have to ask, is the only thing that is going to persuade Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and the others that there is some kind of collusion going on here, that Stormy Daniels releases a picture of Donald Trump in which he has covered Viggo Mortensen style, you know, <laughs> with a Russian mafia tattoo uh, on his torso, uh, as in that scene in Eastern Promises. Um, is, you know, what does it take? <laughs> well, I think the question remains are these guys colluding with the Russians or are they just complete blithering idiots? Um, which is to say... Not, not mutually exclusive. Not mutually exclusive, but which is to say, are they just so naive that it really does not occur to them that when you hire to run your Russia office a former, quote-unquote, former GRU guy, uh, that in fact you are getting into bed with Russian intelligence uh, in an active way, you know, that, that it's a little bit, did they delude themselves into thinking, 
we control this, not they're not controlling us, we're controlling them. This gives us some kind of insight into them, but it doesn't go the other way around. And and I just, you know, we don't know the answer to that. There, there's plenty of evidence that has come out that could move in the direction of, you know, actively conspiring. Uh, there's also ample evidence of blithering idiocy that has come out so far. Uh, and I think it continues to come out every day, not not just on the part of Manafort, Gates, et al., uh, Mike Flynn, but also, you know, on the part of the the still unindicted, such as uh, Jared Kushner and Don Jr. and so forth. You know, that that's sort of not quite getting that they are now playing in a very different world than the world of New York real estate. And I, I know the New York world, New York real estate world is famously cutthroat but not quite understanding the dynamics that, that get involved when you're talking about states and espionage, uh, you know, and, and continuing to sort of think, oh, I'll just go into this meeting by myself. Oh, these people are being so nice to me. Isn't that great? It must be because I'm awesome, uh, you know, not, not realizing what's going on. So, so I, don't, I don't know. I, I, is there overwhelming evidence that, that clearly has already satisfied, you know, some 65% of the American public of idiocy and criminality on the level of financial corruption and so forth? Yes, clearly. Uh, are we going to ever find a smoking gun that shows that they were knowingly and deliberately pushing a Russian agenda? Not clear. Um, David, you know, one of the things about the New York Times that frustrated everybody was that you guys were very cautious about drawing conclusions about Russian interference, particularly when you were being fed lines from, say, the FBI that there wasn't evidence to that effect during the campaign. But as you look at this now, again, it's the same question. The chairman of the president's campaign not only was on the hook to these oligarchs, as we knew, but actually employed Russian spies. You know, I mean, just that's the added piece to this whole kind of thing. And at one, at what point... You know, does it become, you know, foolish to argue to the contrary? Um, well, first, let me um, defensively uh, argue with your premise, because I think the Times was pretty much out in front uh, in laying out the ways that Russia was manipulating not only American elections, but others, and um, won the 2017 uh, Pulitzer Prize for International Reporting for doing exactly that. So uh, I think if you were reading The Times, you had a pretty good sense of what Vladimir Putin's effort was, and that if you viewed it just as the United States, he was doing this, then you were missing the much bigger picture of what he, uh, how he was making use of these tools. What's happened? Since, Maybe, but but you you know the headline I'm referring to, and the yeah, you're 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 referring to a headline about a specific FBI investigation, you know, at the that we ran, I think, at the end of October of 2016. Right, right. Um, so, uh, if you look at the revelations since that time, the things we didn't know in 2016, um, what are they? Uh, that Paul Manafort hired these kinds of people, although he hired them largely for his work elsewhere, we think, for now, um, that we had a lot of, of uh, people within the Trump campaign who the Trump campaign said had never met any Russians, who it turned out had. Uh, the president initially said that all of those stories were fake news, and it turned out they weren't. 
that his national security advisor and some other members of his campaign have um, pleaded uh, guilty on uh, some related charges and are helping uh, him through all this. But I'm with Rosa. I'm not sure that by the time we are all done with this, it's going to come back to uh, Donald Trump holding some levers and figuring out how he could get the Russians directly involved. It may turn into that, but a year and a half into this, we have not seen the smoking gun evidence of that yet. We have certainly seen that the Russians were all over his campaign in many different ways. We don't know to what effect. Well, and one thing that we do know is that with each passing week or month, there is more evidence of deeper ties. And, you know, it is increasingly um, suggestive that, you know, this, this is not just 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, whatever it is, coincidental meetings that, 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 you know, these guys were at least taken advantage of whatever they could in the, in, in their Russia ties. At least they're dupes. The question is whether they are, uh, uh, active conspiracy conspirators or whether they're idiotic dupes. That's exactly the right, the, the right distinction here. Well, but there is, there is, in this at a question, which is when you're running for the top office in the land, part of what you're selling is an awareness of situations like this um, and a sense of how to handle it responsibly. Uh, and this is grotesquely irresponsible in, in, in the best case. Is that not true? Look, I, I mean, I, I share Rosa and David's view about there being a, a welter of evidence, but as yet no proof. Um, I, I do think that Donald Trump's actions uh, vis-a-vis Russia are incredibly revealing. Uh, you know, he was, um, he did uh, ultimately join Theresa May um, in expelling some diplomats, um, some Russian spies this week, 60 spies from the United States, for the Russian embassy in Washington, um, uh, but and there was a, a clear statement from the White House, but not a peep out of Donald Trump himself. Um, he continues to be um, very flattering about Putin in public. He congratulated him for his um, inverted commas uh, a fourth a fourth election victory um, the previous week, uh, and he, he shows all the signs of of being somebody who feels indebted to Vladimir Putin. Um, So circumstantially, you know, the impact of this on actions of state, um, I I think are very significant. They tend to suggest somebody with something to hide. Uh, I can't help but, you know, go back to something I have, we have have discussed before, which is the money side of this, which, uh, as you know, Mueller is... um, been subpoenaing the Trump organization for all kinds of financial documents, uh, some of which are going to pertain to the share of limited liability companies of Shell, of Delaware um, um, uh, based companies that um, are renting out Trump condos, Trump apartments, Trump property assets everywhere, um, which have soared incidentally in the last year. 70% of new Trump 
um, condo contracts are from LLCs. So I can't help but think there's going to be, at the very least, a lot more circumstantial evidence about Trump's financial ties with Russia. And that, you know, this story is by no means fully told. No, I think that's certainly true. I tend to lean a little bit more into this one than the three of you do, um, in the sense that because there were active steps taken by a variety of people over a protracted period of time, whether it's holding meetings or reaching out to the Russians or encouraging publicly the Russians to release these things or um, uh, uh, or doc, you know, sort of arranging policy positions from the from the uh, onset of the Republican convention through to the period of Mike Flynn and his conversations with Kislyak during the transition and afterwards to satisfy the Russians, um, that there is something um, more to all of this, although it may well be that the defense will have always been, we just didn't know. Right. And that that was the, the the screen behind it. But we shall see. And the month of April holds lots of things in store, including a new book by James Comey. Uh, more revelations, undoubtedly, from the Mueller investigation um, and so on. And I think that the pressure from all of that will uh, be be illuminating. Uh, and of course, we'll be here to cover all of that at Deep State Radio twice a week, sometimes three times a week. Who knows? On some really big week, it may be even more than that. Uh, and we will start introducing a couple of new twists to you in terms of new um, uh, weekly podcasts covering in the Deep State style different aspects of global relations. Um, uh, in a little bit more depth. So stay tuned for those. Uh, and, uh, you know, this past week, one of the things that came up in our wonderful ongoing Twitter conversation with the Deep State Radio Nerd Nation uh, was, uh, you know, a new mug competition. And that is, if you can prove that you've done the nerdiest thing of the week in this area and don't, you know, injure yourselves doing it, uh, you will get a mug. So we are going to give out mugs for extremely nerdy um, behavior. Uh, and we know we're talking to the right audience for that. Keep those um, uh, uh, self-nominations coming via Twitter form. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you all back here next week on Deep State Radio. Thank you, David. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Ed. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.